You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is from Psalms 118, but I'll just be reading verses 1 through 2 and 19 through 29. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can go ahead and be seated. Well, what we've been doing over the last several weeks is working through various psalms to show you how prayer is formative in the life of a Christian. And we've been looking at how in the psalms we find words for every event of the human heart. The full range of emotions is found in this book of the Bible. And by these words being written down for us in scripture and handed down to us, God is essentially saying to us, it's okay, you can tell me. I know your needs before you even ask. I know how you feel even better than you do, so it's okay. Tell me how you feel in the way that you feel it. And it's when we do that, when we offer ourselves truly to God in prayer, that he often changes us. He changes our hearts. He helps us to understand who he is, and he begins to conform us to his priorities. And today, we're looking at Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 is a song or a prayer of praise and thanksgiving. And the main point that I want to point out today, uh, you heard it in the first verse. It's actually in the first four verses. It's actually in five of the verses of the 29 verses in this text. And it's this, the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever. See, this psalm is consisting of three general movements around a specific event in Israel's history. And this is a psalm that points us to a specific event in Jesus' life. And this is a psalm that has some specific and certain truths about our Christian journey. But at the very heart of all of it is God. And the fact that he is good and his steadfast covenant-keeping love endures forever. And so let's begin in verse 1 and see how this psalm is calling us to praise him for these things. Look with me at verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. 
Psalm 118 is a liturgical psalm. This is a worship service that we're studying right now. It's describing an event in Israel's history, but like our own worship services, the liturgy of the psalm begins with a call to worship. And like our worship services, we see that different people play different roles in the service. Verses one through four is, is a very, very much a call and response, right? Whoever is leading the call to worship is calling out to different groups of people. He starts with a declaration, but then he calls out to Israel and they respond, his steadfast love endures forever. And then he calls out to the house of Aaron, which would have been the priests of Israel. And they respond, his steadfast love endures forever. And then he calls out to anybody and everybody that is in attendance and fears God. And they respond, his steadfast love endures forever. And like any worthwhile call to worship, the words are setting the tone for what we are about to do. Right? It not only calls us or instructs us to do something, but it tells us to whom we are bringing these praises. Because this psalm is a psalm of praise, we ought to point out the obvious, the object of the people's praise, the object of our praise when we come together is the Lord. And his steadfast love endures forever because his kingdom endures forever. He has no beginning and he will have no end. Therefore, his steadfast love endures as long as he does forever. And see, the psalmist is not calling us to do something, praise the Lord, and then practically leading us to do something else. And we see that because God's covenant name, Lord, the capital letters, Yahweh, the name that he gave to his people Israel, it shows up 28 times in these 29 verses. And when we account for the total references to God in this psalm, all the he's, all the you's, all the hymns, there are some 45 references to the Lord in the 29 verses of this psalm. Not every little detail of this psalm is calling us to cast our eyes away from ourselves and place them on God, whose steadfast love endures forever. Amen? And as it pertains to prayer, this format is very instructive for us. Right? Think about the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus, when he's teaching his disciples how to pray, how does he begin? He says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name. Jesus says the first thing that we do in prayer is praise God. Hallowed means to be set apart, to be made holy, to be revered. And so what we're doing when we enter into prayer, Jesus is saying the first thing you do is set apart God's name. You set him apart and make him holy in your eyes. And because there's praise at the beginning of the prayer, it sets the tone for what comes next, right? Because even when we begin to ask for things in the petitions that follow, they're things for God. They're things for his glory. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so proportionally speaking, about half of the Lord's prayer is dedicated to praises to God or asking him to do things to glorify himself. And here in this psalm, the first 18 verses are filled with praises to God and then a testimony recounting his mighty deliverance. It's not until verse 19, which is about two-thirds of the way through the prayer, that we get to a portion where the speaker begins asking for things to be done to him. And so ask yourself, very honestly, is this how I pray? Are my prayers mostly praise and thanksgiving? Or do they generally center on requests for myself? Now, don't get me wrong. 
there are times to just ask. There are times where this formula, this format, it doesn't quite fit, right? I think about Peter out on the water with Jesus. He's out walking on the water, and the text says that he begins to see the wind and the waves, and he begins to sing. And beautifully and wonderfully, he looks up at the Lord and he utters three beautiful words. Lord, save me. There are times where this format doesn't fit, but generally speaking, thanksgiving and praise ought to precede our petitions to God. Our, God, uh, our prayers ought to be praise and thanksgiving before they're asking things for ourselves. And so think, is, is this generally how my prayer life looks like? Take note of that this week as you pray. But as we come back to our text here, we see that these opening verses set the tone for the rest of the song that follows, right? And this is a familiar refrain found in the Psalms. Psalm 106 opens like this. Psalm 136 opens like this. And they say, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. And as one commentator notes, Um, This familiar call to worship gave the congregation opportunity to rehearse the great acts of God together. It's as if when Israel heard these words at the beginning of their service, they knew what they were about to do. We're about to talk about how great and mighty our God is. We're about to recall all the wonderful things he's done in our history. And that brings us into the second movement of the psalm, verses 5 through 18. These are the portion that we did not have read, but they are in your bulletin. And we enter into a portion of the song that is a testimony of God's deliverance. Look at verse five. Out of my distress, I called to the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. Now there's some scholarly debate regarding what exactly these verses are referring to. Some scholars believe that this psalm is referring to the exodus that when the testimonial portion begins, the speaker is speaking on behalf of the whole of God's people and that they were liberated out of bondage in Egypt by God's great might. And traditionally speaking, uh, this actually makes some sense, especially considering that Psalm 118 is the final psalm of what's known as the Egyptian Hallel. And the word Hallel just means praise. Um, But these are the songs that were sung at the end of the Passover, And Psalm 118 would have been the last hymn that Jesus and his disciples would have sung as they headed out from the Passover meal to the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his betrayal. So some think that this is recalling the Exodus. Others think that this psalm has in mind the Jews returning from the Babylonian exile where they come back to relay the foundation of the temple. But still others, John Calvin, for instance, believes that this psalm was written to commemorate King David's ascent to the throne after years of persecution from Saul. But the fact of the matter is, we just don't know. We don't know. There's no title. There's no explicit historical setting. There's nothing for sure to tell us what this is referring back to. And I'll come back to this in a little bit, but I actually think this is a really good thing for us. But for now, let's keep working through the text. All right, so we're in a testimonial section, and this section is amazing. It's beautiful. See, I've listened to a lot of testimonies over the year, and I'm sure many of you have as well, but the ones that I find the most compelling are the ones that center upon God. They make much of him, right? From from time to time, 
will coach people on how to give their testimonies. Usually this happens uh, during the baptism class where people are going to be given the opportunity before they're baptized to come up and share about the story about how God saved them. And when we're coaching them during that lesson, that lesson is usually very, very short. There is one thing that we point out. Jesus is the hero of the story. If someone listening to your testimony walks away thinking that you are just a strong person, or maybe they think that you're more clever than most, or maybe you, they think that you were able to just get yourself out of a messy situation, then there's a chance that you've done something wrong. Right? God alone is the one responsible for delivering and saving sinners. And he alone deserves the glory for it. And that's what we see here. That's why this is so beautiful and compelling, right? The Lord set him free from his distress, says verse 5. The Lord is on his side providing confidence and certain triumph, verses 6 and 7. The Lord is a better refuge than any person or ruler can provide, verses 8 and 9. The Lord's name is what enables him to drive back the nations, verses 10 through 12. The Lord kept him from falling, verse 13. The Lord is strength, song, and salvation for him, provoking songs among the righteous, verses 14 and 15. The Lord does valiantly and exalts, verses 15 and 16. The Lord has kept him from death and brought him life, verses 17 and 18. And because of this, when he puts his eyes upon this truth, he says in verse 17, I shall recount the deeds of the Lord. He's done these things. Let me tell you about what he's done. When we look at our lives, do we see things this way? Is this how we recount the deeds that have taken place in our lives? If you wouldn't describe your life as a life of consistent praise and thanksgiving to God, it may be that you're taking credit for things that God has done for you. Why would you give him praise for putting food on the table when you're the one that goes to work every day and earns the money that buys it? Why would you give him praise for delivering you out of a life leading to death when you're the one that followed the 12 steps that got you out? Why would you bring him praise for exalting you when you believe that basically you deserved it? Listen, it's, it's hard for us to thank God for what we feel like we've accomplished for ourselves. It's hard to be humble when we feel like we deserve the blessings that we've been given. But when we see things from the heavenly perspective of the speaker here, we see it as Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. No good thing in our lives comes to us except by goods, God's good, loving, and faithful hand. And so like the psalmist, our testimony should be full with recounting the deeds of the Lord. That's what our lives should look like. And hey, friends, listen. This is the beauty of the gospel. This victory, this freedom was decisively won by God. But by faith, it's actually the psalmist's as well. As, one, as commentator Derek Kidner puts it, the battle was single-handed, but the victory is shared. Right? We're like the kids in the group project that did none of the work, but still got the A. 
And this is part of the reason that this is sung at the end of the Passover. It's a commemoration of God liberating Israel out of Egypt by his strength. But then he causes Israel, we know the story, right? He then causes Israel to walk through the Red Sea on dry ground, showing that the battle that he decisively won, liberating them out of Egypt, is shared with the people of Israel. And this is the consistent story of the Bible. This is the gospel. Christ's victory over sin is given to us by faith that we may share in it. God gets all of the glory for the saving work. Don't get me wrong, but we get to stand in the victory by faith. And I wish I had more time to elaborate on that, but we've got a shortened service, and so I got to keep it moving. And so now we move into the third and final portion of the psalm, the final movement. Look at verses 19 and 20. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. In verses 19 through 29, our victor, who beginning back in verse 10, begins to start speaking like a king, has now arrived at the gate of the Lord that the righteous enter through. Psalm 118 is the second most quoted psalm in the New Testament, behind only Psalm 110. And this final portion is the reason why. Many of you, I'm sure, as you heard the passage read earlier, uh, you heard verses that you recognize. Verses that probably many of us have said already today. Right? In verses 22 and 23, we see that our kingly victor, he was rejected. He was the good cornerstone that the builders threw away. And so he wasn't only surrounded and hated by other nations that the psalm points out earlier, but he was rejected. What this means is that he was rejected by the leaders of Israel themselves. And well, Jesus attributes these verses to himself. We see that recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel. He says, that's about me. And Peter and Paul both cite these verses at various points to show that Jesus was the true king. He was the true cornerstone who was rejected not only by the Romans, but by the Jews. But what looked like rejection to us was actually a marvelous thing, the psalm says. In a way that we couldn't have imagined, this was God's doing. Or consider verse 24. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. If you've been around Christianity for any length of time, then you've probably heard someone say this, right? Maybe in a conversation when you're a little down and they're trying to cheer you up. Hey, this is the day that the Lord has made. We got to rejoice in this one too. Or maybe when they're praying, try to stir their own hearts to praise. And it's true, God has made every day. And each day that he has made is one that we ought to rejoice and be glad in him for. But in the context of this psalm, in the liturgy, it's speaking of a particular day. This is the day that the king arrives at the gates to his city. This is the day that leads the builders to reject the cornerstone. This is the day that we can point to and say to God, you have become my salvation, says verse 21. See, a few minutes ago, I told you that commentators and scholars, they don't really know uh, what event in Israel's history this is pointing back to. And I said that I thought that that is actually a good thing. Well, let me tell you why. See, in Luke 24, after his resurrection, Jesus appears to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And in Luke's gospel, chapter 24, 24 verse 27, it says, it says this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, 
he being Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I think it's a good thing that we don't have a list of the passages that Jesus pointed these disciples to because we'd be tempted to think that these are the only Old Testament passages meant to point us to Christ. If we had a list, we'd say, nope, don't go off the list. Instead, because we don't know exactly what the texts are that he opened, we must assume that the whole thing was concerning him. Everything in the Old Testament is meant to point us to Christ. And so in the same way, because we don't know exactly what instance this psalm is referring back to, what specific moment in history, we're compelled to see that the true historical moment we're reading about, that we're reading about in this psalm, it happens in the scene we, play, we see play out as Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Jesus, seated on a donkey, approaches the gates of his city, Jerusalem, and the Gospel of Matthew records it like this. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Who is this? Here we see the words of our text in Psalm 118 coming to life. The crowd is reciting verses 25 and 26 with their praises shouting, Hosanna, which means save now. They're crying out to Jesus, the son of David, which means that they believe him to be the one that the prophets had been speaking of. The king in David's line that would come and free them from their bondage. The imagery literally could not have been clearer. The Gospels tell us that Jesus is riding down the Mount of Olives on the back of a donkey's colt. And Zechariah, the Jews would have known that Zechariah 9 says that the king of Zion comes mounted on a donkey. And Zechariah 14 says that he'll fight against evil from the Mount of Olives. They're, they're looking at this scene playing out before them and they go, this is our guy. He's here. Liberation has come. The king has arrived. And while they were shouting the right things, these words are absolutely about Jesus. They didn't really know what they were doing. They didn't understand what he had really come to do. They thought that he was coming and entering into the city and headed straight to the throne, not the cross. They thought Jesus was coming to liberate them from Rome. They didn't know that by the end of the week, they wouldn't be crying Hosanna anymore, but they'd be joining the crowd screaming, crucify him. They didn't realize that in less than a week, Jesus, the King of the Jews, the King of Zion, the King of glory, God from very God, would be killed on a Roman gibbet, as J.I. Packer puts it. They didn't realize that he had come to save, yes, but save them from their true enemy, Satan, sin, and death, by giving himself as a once and for all sacrifice for their sins. As one author puts it, it's in the events of this week when the realities of God broke through the signs and symbols 
and shadows of this song. The horns of the altar became the arms of the cross. And the festival itself, the day that the Lord had made, the one we are to rejoice and be glad in, found its fulfillment in Christ, our true Passover lamb. And now by faith, on the other side of Christ's death and glorious resurrection, we can join the procession of praise with him to his true city, the gates of the new Jerusalem. Now every day we can live out the actions of Palm Sunday as the king in triumph heads to the gates of his heavenly city. This is the life that we now live. It's a pilgrimage of praise as we move toward our eternal rest with Jesus Christ as our king. Right? Revelation 22 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and they they may enter the city by the gates. Eternity ends in us entering God's heavenly city. And see, because of Christ, this psalm can now be taken upon our lips as well. This is our song. This is our prayer. By faith, the the victory that Christ won on the cross is now shared with us. He liberated us, but we're singing songs of praise as we walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. Day by day, we can enter into worship, praising God for his steadfast love. We can recount the way that he kept us from our foes. We can recount about how when we were surrounded, we were able to take refuge in the Lord. How he fought for us and sustained us and how even when it seemed like all pointed to death, he became life for us. The victory that Christ decisively won is shared with us by faith. But if we're going to share in his victory, we we have to concede that we also have to share in his lifestyle. The Christian life is suffering first and then glory. But hear me, it is not suffering first and then joy. Joy litters the path. We can have joy all along the way because we know that by the Spirit in us and the confidence of Christ's finished work, glory is coming. And so we bring God the praise and thanksgiving that he is due throughout the whole of our lives. We know for certain that through Christ, we will approach the heavenly gates of the eternal city someday and say, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. That's where we're headed. This is, this life is just the beginning of an eternity of praise. Through all of the trials, all of the hardships, all of the woes that we'll face in this life, we we enter this glorious procession of praise, marching on with Christ as our captain, our advocate, our savior, the king of glory as our head. At all times, giving thanks to the Lord for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray.